let me read our text for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that its grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you might be wondering why this text, right? To stand alone should be easy, like pick a psalm, Colton, right? Um, well, back in October, I was meeting with some, some of our guys uh, from the church at Denny's. We get together every couple of weeks, and this was a season for me this past year where, I, I don't know, I, I just... I felt like I was beat down, I felt tired, I felt exhausted, you know, just one of those seasons. Do you ever, you ever have those, right? You know what I'm talking about. Someone laughed. Um, <laughs> you must have a hard life. Um, and the guys asked me, hey, how are you doing, Colton? And so I said, well, to be honest, I'm just kind of surviving right now. Anybody else ever said that? Uh, as the week went on, um, people would ask me how I'm doing, and I kept saying that. I kept saying, I'm, I'm just surviving. And then I remember one Sunday morning in October, I walked in and I started asking other people, hey, how are you doing? And they started using that phrase. And they started saying, I'm just surviving. Or they would say something similar like, well, I'm just really busy right now. Or I'm hanging in there. Um, And so I remember the next day, Monday, I was sitting at my desk and I was praying and a thought popped into my head as I was just kind of reflecting on that week before. And so I pulled out my notes app. Um, Sometimes it's what I do if I feel like I want to remember something or if I have a thought, something maybe from the Spirit that I want to remember. And so I just made a note that said, I'm just surviving. Why do we say that so casually? Uh, A couple months went by. I didn't think a thing about it. Um, But one evening I was reading Scripture and I came to this text in 2 Corinthians. And as I read these words from Paul, treasure in jars of clay. Afflicted, not crushed, struck down, not destroyed. Do not lose heart. Eternal weight of glory. As I read those words, that phrase popped into my head again. And so I went back into the note uh, and I wrote next to that phrase, we are made for more than just surviving. So here's my question that I want us to think about since we've got this 
free week in between Christmas and the start of Colossians, um, end of 2023 going into 2024. The question I want us to answer today is, do you actually believe, like truthfully believe, that you are made for more than just surviving? Like, I'm curious, how many in this room, like, you would say, that's a phrase that I've said before. Anybody? Or you've said, I'm just really busy, or I'm just hanging in there. Right. I'd be willing to bet that all of us in the room have heard someone else say it, right? Um, To me, as I read this text, that phrase perfectly describes a jar of clay, okay? So a jar of clay would have been a very common item during this time, uh, during the time that this letter was written. You would have found it in almost every household. They would have been sold in the market. A jar of clay was a very inexpensive and easily breakable item. It was a fragile jar. It was very vulnerable. And what's so cool about this text is that's the analogy that Paul uses to describe us as believers, that you are a jar of clay. You are fragile, vulnerable. And honestly, when you think about it, it's kind of a harsh way to think Like, it's kind of a harsh thing for Paul to say. I mean, he is saying to you, think about it. You are a common piece of clay. You break easy. You aren't all that strong. In fact, you are rather weak. There's nothing really significant about you. And if we're honest, this is how most of us think about ourselves. Like, especially when we say something like, I'm just surviving. We are saying, I could break at any moment. The weight of life is weighing me down. I feel like at any moment, I could shatter. And Paul associates the jar of clay with several other descriptors in this text. I don't know if you caught it. But there are two ideas that drive this first section. The ideas are that of treasure and jars of clay. And so he follows up jars of clay with several words that would describe what it means to be a jar of clay. He uses the word afflicted in verse 8. Afflicted is the idea that there is something happening in your life that is causing you pain. Circumstances are collapsing on you. The word literally means to be pressed in on. Could be physical pain. Maybe there's something lingering, some kind of sickness in your life that, that afflicts you. Could be a circumstance that afflicts you. Could be difficulty in your marriage or difficulty with a child. Maybe you absolutely despise your job. <laughs> and so every day you go into work, you feel afflicted. But you feel very vulnerable, like you're about to break. And then Paul uses the word perplexed. It's the idea that I'm confused, I'm uncertain. Maybe you're confused as to why the world is the way that it is. Maybe you're confused by what something did to you. Why did they have to do that to me? Why did they have to say that? Maybe you're perplexed by your own decisions. Why did I have to do that? Why did I say that? He uses the word persecuted. Maybe you are someone who has felt the hostility in this world, that there are many Christians in the world right now that experience real persecution every day. Maybe you're a teenager and you feel the weight of being a follower of Christ in this world and it brings you some fear. Maybe you feel struck down. It it literally means to be knocked down by force, that something has happened in your life that has interrupted it and it is beating you down. And like a jar of clay, you feel like you have a bunch of chips in you now. Or the, or the jar is starting to break. You feel extremely weak. You feel exposed. You feel like you're just surviving. So let me ask the question again. Do you believe that you were made for more than just surviving? I think the Bible would say absolutely yes. I mean, look at what he says in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
So scripture says that within this jar of clay, there is a treasure. So if you've caught the analogy yet, jar of clay is us as believers. And God is saying that within this fragile, vulnerable, easily breakable, chipped jar of clay, inside of it, there is a treasure. That within you is something that is more precious than gold. It's better than silver. Something that is better than anything else in this life. And God chose, what's so cool? God chose to put this treasure inside of a jar of clay. He didn't put it in a secure vault. He didn't put it in some kind of golden pot. He put this treasure inside of a broken, fragile, weak, exposed jar of clay. And so the natural question is, well, okay, what's this treasure? What is this treasure inside of these jars of clay? If you go back one verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul actually tells us. I don't, have it, I don't think I have it up there. You have to look it up in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay, and that treasure is that while we, we were in darkness, our sin had wrecked us. It brought into our lives brokenness, shame, hopelessness, and the light of God coming through the coming of Jesus has shone in our hearts, and it has displaced the darkness, and it has given light to knowledge that we see now the glory of God in the face of of Jesus. So think about it. God put this treasure inside of a fragile, weak, vulnerable jar of clay that a human being, fragile as you are, that you would know the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so check it out. What does this treasure do, right? What does this treasure do? 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but because of this treasure, we're not crushed. So yeah, you feel the pain of this life. You feel the weight of that sickness. You feel the pain of plans unmet. You feel anxiety or depression, these things that try to capture your mind, but you're not crushed. That affliction cannot crush you. Why? Because you have a treasure. You have a treasure. The light of Christ has penetrated your life. And because you have the knowledge of the glory of God, you cannot be crushed because your eyes are not set on that affliction. Your eyes are set on the treasure of Christ. You're perplexed maybe but you're not driven to despair. Like you might be confused by what you see in this world. That when you look at the news, you're like, oh my gosh, this is such a mess. There is no hope, but the treasure inside of you says, no, you look to King Jesus. You're, you're, you're not driven to despair. Maybe you're confused as to why you keep going back to that same old sin. It feels like it controls you and you're tempted to just give in to despair, to just give up. The treasure inside of you says, no. You look into the face of Jesus. There you see the glory of God. Look into something better. You might be perplexed, but you are not driven to despair. You might feel persecuted, but you're not forsaken. When the hostility of this world falls on you, the treasure inside of you reminds you, I have not left you. I am with you. I have not forsaken you. You might feel struck down, but you're not destroyed, right? The treasure of the gospel doesn't allow it. It doesn't allow it. Every time something strikes you down, knocks you off your feet, the treasure that lives within you moves your eyes to the glory of God, to the face of Jesus. Like, let's really wrap our minds around this, okay? What is the most precious treasure that could ever exist? I think this text is telling us it is the treasure 
of knowing God, to have knowledge, to know God is the greatest treasure that a human being can have. And that has been made possible through Jesus, that he died so that we might know him. And where did God put this treasure? He put it in us, in jars of clay. Why? Why in the world would God do that? Why would he put this treasure inside of a weak, fragile, exposed jar of clay? Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God wants to make something very clear to the entire world. We are weak, but he is strong. The spread of the gospel does not happen because of us. We are weak, chipped, cracked, but he is glorious, that God is going to display his glory, not through the strong, but God is going to display his glory to the world through the weak. See, the the strong might be tempted to hide their need for God. But the weak, the weak is unashamed to say, I not only survive, but I have abundant life. I might look fragile. I might look weak. I might have chips and cracks, but I have a treasure. So the weak says, I have joy in this life because of the gospel. And it's in our weakness. We're so ashamed to be weak. But it's in our weakness that we prove the strength and power of God. That when we, real, when we feel the realities of affliction, right? We say, oh, but I'm not crushed. I've got a treasure. When we feel perplexed, we say, oh, but listen, I'm not, I'm not driven to despair. I have a treasure. When we're persecuted, we say, oh, but, but I'm not forsaken. I have a treasure. When we're struck down, we say, no, 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 I'm not, but I'm not destroyed. I have a treasure, The light of Christ has shone into my heart and I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Yeah, I might be weak, but my God, he is strong. And this is so contrary to how we think in the Western world. Like we are tempted every day to appear strong, are we not? We're we're tempted to appear, appear strong. Like the idea of admitting just how weak or scared we actually feel, that's terrifying for us. What if they don't respect me? What if they think of me differently? What if they don't want to be around me anymore? If they really knew the fears, the the things that goes through my mind and how I actually feel, we all want to give the appearance of strength. But the truth is, if the goal of your life is to appear as if you have it all together, like you've got no chips, you've got no cracks, then the reality is you have completely missed the gift of grace the gift of what God can do in and through your life. Because for the one who is aware of their weakness, that person has eyes to see the glory of Jesus. That, yeah, we are weak, frail followers of Jesus, but we are sustained through the power of God. And we get the privilege of experiencing the power of Christ. That's why Paul explains uh, in verse 10, he says, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And so think about this. Every second of your life and every place that you go for the rest of your days, you embody the death of Jesus. The idea is that wherever you go, you represent and live out the crucified name of Jesus. His death is proclaimed through you that he was beaten. He was cursed. His last breath was taken on an instrument of death, a Roman cross, but his life 
was set on the priorities of his father, of the glory of God, not on the priorities of the world, not on the priorities of the flesh. And as believers, we live our lives centered on those same priorities. So when the world around us wants to crush us, when it wants to beat us down, we don't just throw in the towel, we don't retaliate, but we point to the priority of Jesus. We point to the glory of God that in our lives, we carry out the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus is manifested through us. I mean, remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where do you think they're going? The mall? This is what Paul's talking about here. It's a readiness to suffer any loss for Jesus' sake. Now, I want to make something clear here. Um, I want to make sure we understand what the text is saying, but also make sure we understand what the text isn't saying, because I've heard this taught a few different ways before. Um, This text isn't saying that you must enter into any unnecessary suffering in order to be a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? You don't need to enter into any unnecessary suffering to be a follower of Jesus. Like, and I want to make this clear, there are times, you see this in scripture, there are times when God chooses to bless his people through physical blessing. There are times when God will choose to do that. He will choose to bless you with health, or he will choose to bless you with wealth. He, he will intervene into a hard circumstance, and he will heal. He will put back together. He absolutely can heal of that Ill, illness, and we should pray for that. But that's up to his sovereign will. What we have to understand is that you are not owed or promised any kind of physical blessing, okay? And, and so when we receive blessing, we should not despise the blessing that God has given. In those times, we should celebrate the gift. Like, there are Christians around the globe right now that gather this moment, morning knowing that any moment harm could come to them because of their faith. But we, we have the blessing of being able to worship freely this morning. Not persecuted for the things that we're saying, not persecuted for worshiping, but there are other people in the world that don't have that blessing, and God has given us this. However, I will say, in the Western world, we need to be aware of the temptation to make these blessings our idols, right? Like, yeah, we are blessed with the freedom to gather because America allows us to, but we have to make sure that we don't make an idol out of that blessing. Like if the government made a law today that said, hey, churches, you're no longer able to gather, would you be crushed? Would you be driven to despair? I hope not. I don't think God's power is limited to the freedoms that we have in America. And so we need to be aware of the temptations of what is called the prosperity gospel. This idea, this lie that blessing is a result of our faith, that blessing is a result of our faith. That, that is such an easy message to grab onto. And we grab hold of it so easily because we believe that we are owed something. And, and it t- creates this message that if you don't have health, if you don't have wealth, then there's something wrong with you. You're not praying enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. Like America has a rich history, a rich history of uh, prosperity gospel. Like the teachings of Oral Roberts to Joel Olstein, 
And I would imagine not many of us in here are following the teachings of Oral Roberts or Joel Osteen, but how many of us have felt like God is punishing us because we haven't read our Bible enough or we haven't prayed enough that we begin to think that because we love Jesus, we are in some way owed something. You ever said, well, I've loved Jesus all my life. I don't know why he would do this to me. The reward of our faith is not perfect circumstances. It's not a healthy body. It's not wealth. The reward of our faith is that we have fellowship with our creator and our savior. And when we suffer or when we feel like we're just surviving, we get the blessing of being able to cling to Jesus because he's all we've got. That's the best blessing we could ever get. I mean, look what he says in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to prosperity. What does he say? We are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That word given, it's the same Greek word used when Pilate gave Jesus over to be crucified, that they handed him over. The plan of God was to hand over Jesus to death. What do you think the, why do you think the plan of God for us is so different? That just like Jesus, we as followers of Christ, we are being given over to thousands of little deaths in our lives. That over and over, we have to crucify self. That we kill our flesh that so longs to enjoy the pleasure of this world. We kill the idea that we are owed something in our lives. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested. So that the world can see there's something better out there. That in our lives, pride is not displayed, but rather in our lives, the life of Jesus is displayed that every day we kill the idol of self and God helps us to see this treasure that's inside of us. So let me ask a question, general, easy question. Here's the question. Do you believe God has a plan for your life and that plan is for your good? Do you believe that God has a plan for your life and that God's plan for your life is good? Yeah, easy question. You bet he does. Romans 8, 28, right? Popular. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. For those who are called according to his purposes. But let's keep in mind, your definition of good might be different than God's definition of good, right? So what's truly good for you might not be perfect health. It might not be the perfect family or the perfect amount of money. What might be good for your soul is those moments when you're in darkness and you've got nothing but Jesus. The good moments of your life might be that difficult process of sanctification. That every day he's going to make you more and more like him. It's not more stuff, more blessing. It's that you get Jesus. Where the treasure that you have in this jar of clay is all that you have. And in those moments you realize just how precious that treasure is. Is. And it's in those moments that the life of Jesus is manifested in our mortal bodies that we proclaim his death. It's in those moments where we will know what Jesus meant when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You might say, well, Colton, that doesn't sound like very much fun. When you talk about following Jesus like that, that's not very appealing. We want to bring people into church, not scare them away. Well, if you understand how satisfying the treasure is that you have, all other options are unappealing. 
Suffering with Jesus is better than all the comforts of this world without Jesus. And look, no one wants to be persecuted. Come on. We're not idiots. No one wants to suffer. No, no one wants to be crushed. No one wants to be perplexed, struck down. But, but if I get Jesus, if I get to know Jesus, and I know that Jesus knows me, and I know that Jesus is providing for me, that he is sustaining me, that I have his joy, his peace, his salvation, then the church gladly says, bring it on. Because I want him. Nothing else. You know, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he's talking to his disciples. And his disciples say, hey, Jesus, look, bro, we, we know who you are. We know who you are. We know that you've come from God. And Jesus says, oh, 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 yeah. Do you now believe? And so he goes on to tell them in John 16, 32. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has coming when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. And then in 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, you're all going to ditch me. You're all going to ditch me. But I want you to hear this, disciples. When you ditch me and tribulation comes, I want you to remember that in me you have peace. This world will not be easy. You will have trial after trial after trial. But take heart, disciples. Believe this. I have overcome that world. You don't have to give up. You don't have to run. I have won on your behalf. I am the victor. I am the king. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. That Jesus died. And every day, the work of that death is proclaiming something through us in these jars of clay. His death is declared by us through the anchoring of our souls to his purposes, to his life. Remember why we have this treasure in jars of clay. Remember why the gospel has come to you. What does verse seven say? To show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. And that's why in verse seven, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak. So Paul says, we have a spirit of faith that speaks because the spirit that lives inside of us has something to say. Like we speak about Christ crucified because we have seen and believe in the crucified Christ. And so the spirit inside of us goes, Christ crucified, look at him, speak about him, believe in what you've seen. We, we talk about the hope of Christ because we have seen and experienced the hope that comes in Christ. So the spirit says, speak about it, believe it, and speak about it. He, he quotes Psalm 116. I read it at the beginning. That Psalm 116, it's all about how God sustains people in the face of death. And at the end, the psalmist says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. And so Paul uses that text to say, that's what we do. We have received this gospel treasure and these fragile jars of clay. And in the midst of tribulation, we get the privilege of proclaiming the life of Jesus as we suffer like he did. And so in verse 14, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Okay. 
This is awesome, y'all. There's a promise that we cling to that gives us hope. This promise gives us confidence. There is something coming that when you feel like you're just surviving, when you're afflicted, when you're persecuted, when you're struck down, there is something that we hold on to that drives our feet forward. The first is the resurrection. It says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also from the dead. So if they kill you, what's going to happen? Resurrection. The promised resurrection gives us confidence to keep moving forward, that death is not the end for us. It's the beginning of an eternity with our king. And second, he says there is a glory that awaits us. He will bring us into his presence. One day, every believer will experience something called glorification, that moment when God completes his work in you, sanctification done, no more trials, no more testing, no more growth. God grows you into who he's called you to be. And in that place, on that day, you will stand in the presence of God without shame, without fear. His work in you will be complete. And here's the point that Paul is making. Death and decay is not the end for you. Living in glory with Christ is the end of your story, guaranteed. And so underline, circle, highlight, do whatever you do with your Bible to make your eyes be drawn to it in the future. Circle, underline, whatever, that word knowing. Highlight it if you're in your phone, right? But mark that word knowing in verse 14 because there will be a moment in 2024, maybe tomorrow, um, day one, or maybe later in the year where you will feel like life is crushing you, where you will feel like you're just surviving. And if you wanna do more than survive in 2024, then you have to know what God says. You have to know what he says. Like those moments when life is crushing you, you begin to lose hope. Are you indulged in that sin that you never said you were gonna go back to? When you feel like you're just surviving, it is the most disoriented feeling you can have, right? Like you don't know what's left and right. You don't know what to do. You don't know what the right decisions to make are. You don't know how to feel. And it can be such a disorienting experience. And in those moments, you're looking for something to cling to. You're looking for something to hold on to. And in those moments, you have to know what God says. You have to know what God says about himself, and you have to know what God says about you. And in this moment, Paul has tethered his heart to the resurrection and to the coming glory, and he is saying to the people in Corinth, you have to know this. And so Paul completes a progressive thought in verse 15. He says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. All right, there's a progression here. Do you see it? Grace leads to gratitude that leads to glory. Grace that leads to gratitude that leads to glory. So when people encounter the grace of God, they are filled with gratitude. And that right there is a life that is more than surviving. That as we encounter his grace, we are filled with thanksgiving and give glory to who? To God, who's showing himself. Like self moves out of the way. When we see the grace of God, our hearts are filled with gratitude and self moves and we go, look. Look at how good he is. And so he concludes in verse 16 and he says, so 
we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. What goes through your mind when you, when you read that? The literal idea behind the phrase lose heart, it means to be discouraged, uh, to give up the desire to go on. And I wonder who in this room, if that's where you are right now. Like, are you tempted, or maybe you already have, to give up the desire to move forward? Like, if something were to push you to the point where you just give up, what would that be? I have no doubt that there's someone in this room, or maybe several people, where that's where you're at. You look at this and say, so we don't, do not lose heart, and you're like, I'm already there. I've already lost heart. Like, you're almost are already to the tipping point where you just want to call it quits. Call it quits on your marriage. Call it quits on the possibility of having joy. Call it quits on your, your church. Call it quits on faith. Maybe even call it quits on life itself. In fact, there's something I want to do. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to have everyone close their eyes and look down. Not yet, but in a moment. There's something powerful about confession. We're not going to do a public confession, but confession just between you and the Lord. And so I want to give you the opportunity, just you and the Lord, to make that confession. To say, no, this is where I'm at. I'm on the verge of calling it quits. So you don't have to say anything out loud, but I want to give those of us in here who feel the weight, you feel afflicted, you feel perplexed, you feel struck down, you feel persecuted, and you're like, I'm almost done with marriage, with trying to be a parent, with life, with faith. So if that's you, I want to give you a moment. And so go ahead and everybody, close your eyes, lower your head, and no one raise their eyes, don't cheat. I want to give those who want some sort of privacy in a, in a room like this, the opportunity to have that. I'm not even going to look. I'm going to look down at my notes. But I'm going to give you 10 seconds. And if you're one of those people where you say, you know, I'm on the verge of calling it quits, with whatever that is, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I, I'm, I'm, let's give you 10 seconds. And if that's you, just raise your hand, and that's your act of confession to the Lord. And you're asking him, by doing that, you're asking him to meet you, to meet you in that place. So I'll give you 10 seconds. Go ahead. Raise your hand. That's you. I want to take a second and pray for you. And my ask is that with every ounce of effort that you have left in your soul, that you would join me in this prayer. Father, grant us the gift of faith. As we read these next few verses, make our minds know them, make our hearts believe them, move our hands and feet to act in them. We have been afflicted in every way, but God, we're not crushed. God, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We might be persecuted, God, but we're not forsaken. We might feel struck down, but God, we are not destroyed. Yes, God, we are but a jar of clay, fragile, vulnerable, weak, so help us to see the treasure that lives inside, the gift of grace and the death of Christ. So God, help us to believe you when your word says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, God, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You can look up now. Paul, he says, he uses the word so in the ESV. Um, some translations say, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, in Scripture you have to ask, well, what's it there for? So you have to look backwards in order to understand what's ahead. And so Paul says, here's, here's your summary, okay? You have a treasure in a jar of clay, therefore. You've been afflicted, but not forsaken, therefore. You have been perplexed, but not driven to despair, Therefore, you've been struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, you carry with you in your body the death of Christ. Therefore, you're always being given over to death for, over to death for Jesus' sake. Therefore, I know that he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise me from death. Therefore, I know that one day I will be in the presence of Jesus. Therefore, therefore, because of all these things, we do not lose heart. Yeah, your outer self is wasting away. How many of you feel old? You feel it. Some of you, the weight of the world is beating you down. You, you, you feel like a jar of clay, fragile, weak, vulnerable. But listen, God is doing something in you that no one and nothing can stop. Every day, he is renewing your soul because there is a treasure inside of you that reminds you that you have obtained something better, better than all riches, better than all comforts. And in the moments of suffering, the treasure reminds you that Jesus is better. And listen, last point, Jesus will not waste your pain. Whatever it is, Jesus will not waste your pain. He will use your pain in this life, one, to point others to himself. I mean, just a few verses earlier, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all, what? Comforts. Why? Why does he comfort us? Who comforts us in all of our, look at that word, affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. So there is not a single pain God cannot use for his kingdom. He will not waste it. He will use your pain to show himself to others through you. But also, deeper picture, that pain is preparing you for something. That thing that you've, you went through, that affliction, that, that you, when you were struck down, it's preparing you for something. It's interesting. In verse 17, Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, which I giggle at. Uh, I don't know why I use the word giggle. It's not in my notes. Um, This light momentary affliction. What was Paul's light momentary affliction? 2 Corinthians 11.22. This is Paul's light momentary affliction. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. And listen to what he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. How many of you have been shipwrecked once? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I've got anxiety over one church. This is Paul's light momentary affliction. What's yours? What's yours? Paul has some scars that were put there for the glory of Jesus. What do your scars look like? Whatever it is, it is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. You see that? This is why you don't lose heart. Your pain has an expiration date and you're going to something, to someone that is better. Evil will end, shame will end, no more just surviving. One day the weight of God's glory will fully fall on you and it will displace everything else. And on that day, I promise, it will all be worth it. But until that day, we submit to Paul's final words in this section. So we'll just end here. He says to us, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. 